You're listening to Her Brilliant Health Radio, episode number 19. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to Her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN Dr. Kieran Dunstan shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. everybody. It's Dr. Kieran. Welcome to another episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. Today, I have a special guest who's going to hopefully help you understand your stress and how it impacts your health and how you can start to transform the negative impact of stress on your health into a positive impact. Because we can't avoid stress. They're actually good stressors as well as bad stressors. So as long as we're going to have it, we may as well make it work for us. So please help me welcome my guest, Dr. Heidi Hanna. Dr. Hanna helps people transform their stress from having a negative health impact to having a beneficial and supportive effect on their optimal health performance. And she is the New York Times best-selling author of several books, including The Sharp Solution, Stressaholic, and Recharge. Her newest book, What's So Funny About Stress, is now available. She's the Chief Energy Officer of Synergy, a company providing brain-based health and performance programs. She's the executive director of the American Institute of Stress and a founding partner of the Academy for Brain Health and Performance. Her clients and affiliations include Fortune Magazine, ESPN, Google, Starbucks, Microsoft, Morgan Stanley, the PGA, and the NFL, and more. Heidi's also a certified humor professional with with the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, although she won't admit she's funny, but we'll see if that's true or not today, because if you've been listening to the podcast, then you know I like to laugh for no reason and look for excuses to laugh, (laughs) and we'll see how funny Heidi is. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you so much. Well, listening to that introduction always makes me feel a little stressed because it sounds like a lot of work, but I feel so grateful to actually have turned something that was really a challenge for me into a blessing, and that is stress. It's my favorite thing to talk about um, for good reasons, not because I need to vent all the time. So I look forward to speaking with you today about a lot of the different ways that your listeners can actually do just what you said, which is change it from something that hurts us to something that helps us. Yeah, so tell us, and everybody listening, tell us how you came to be the stress expert, the stress expert. (laughs) Sounds like it should be one word. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes I call myself the stress detective because I like looking into stress and figuring out what it's trying to teach us. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, it it really started... um, out of a need to live a better life. I actually have a condition called vasovagal syndrome, which a lot of people have never heard of before. Mine happens to be anxiety induced. And what that means is that when I get really anxious about something, I will literally pass out. 
and that started when I was about 12. Um, at the age of 10, I started getting headaches and stomach aches and doctors trying to figure out what was wrong would always come to the same conclusion, which is it's probably stress, which was strange for me because I would think a 10 or 11 year old shouldn't really have that much stress in their life the way we typically think of stress. Um, so throughout my life, trying to better understand why my brain and my body were kind of hijacking me in these situations, why I would get triggered. And um, it was really debilitating. I can think of circumstances on airplanes, on blind dates, on job interviews where I would actually um, black out, quite embarrassing. Uh, and then when I would talk to medical professionals, they would tend to say, we're not really sure what it is. It might be epilepsy. We could give you some medication, but it just really felt like this black hole. So I started um, really exploring and learning more about first psychology. I got a master's degree in psychology. Then I got a PhD in holistic nutrition. I became trained in exercise physiology and was trying to put all the pieces together really to understand the mind-body connection and uh, started working for a company called the Human Performance Institute, which was uh, an amazing blessing for me where I got to teach energy management pr uh, principles to companies and individuals within companies. But all the while, as I was doing that and kind of teaching everybody else what to do, I was struggling more and more and more. And I could just feel myself really burning out and breaking down. And right around that time, my third grandparent was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And so it was a bit of a tipping point for me to think about how powerful the brain is and how important it is that we really think about caring for our brain uh, as our number one priority, I believe. We know a lot about heart health, we know a lot about weight management, diabetes, those types of things, but brain health and brain performance are still fairly new because we now can see through technology um, what interventions really do help us to change both the structure and the function of our brains. And so stress became very different for me when I started looking at it from a neuroscience perspective, that stress is really just what happens when demand exceeds capacity. And that could be physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, social, and all these different areas of our life, if there's more demand on us than we have capacity to meet, stress is actually trying to do us a favor by promoting you know, certain stress hormones and giving us extra energy for a short period of time. The problem is when that goes on for too long or when it's too intense, then it can dramatically change how our nervous system um, kind of works with the circumstances of our lives. So ultimately that's what I learned about vasobagal syndrome was that for some people, um, we're genetically predisposed to embody stress in a, in a bit of a different way. There's certain people with stress sensitivity that will embody that. And it uh, has to do with the vagus nerve actually kind of becoming overactive. So instead of fight or flight, we have this freeze or faint reaction. And I found out by speaking about this in my talks that I'm definitely not alone. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of your listeners have had similar experiences as well. So yes, let's talk about stress sensitivity. How would you define that? I think that a lot of people would say they're sensitive to stress, but by definition, when uh, demand exceeds supply, isn't that a sensitive condition right there? So isn't everybody stress sensitive? 
I would say that everybody has certain traits that make them aware of stress. And we know neurologically we have five times more negative circuits than positive, that we're hardwired for kind of paying attention to potential threats in our environment. So everyone is picking that up. And if we put, you know, 10 people into a brain scanner and have them actually experience something that would be stress provoking, everybody would light up in the limbic system, the middle part of the brain, the amygdala, that, that fear reaction. What happens that's really interesting and fairly new in the research is about 15 to 20% of the population will actually show heightened activity deeper in the brainstem and actually going down into the body. And there's been this kind of interesting combination of different pockets of research happening. So this really started with Dr. Elaine Aaron, who discovered a highly sensitive person um, trait that 15 to 20% of humans have, but also other animal species, which is really interesting. So sometimes it's called timid versus resilient. Um, we look at flowers, maybe the orchid versus the dandelion. And it seems that a portion of the population is more sensitive to be able to predict earlier when there may be a storm or some sort of change. Um, it could even be an energetic shift um, in our environment because the sensitives can then kind of warn everybody else. There's also about 15 to 20% of people who are highly resilient, who really don't notice um, what's going on around them. They're able to kind of stay more focused on the task at hand. And then of course that, that middle section that can go either way. Um, but for me, I think I've started to speak out more about stress sensitivity because a lot of people who are in helping professions have this natural intuition. They're more inclined to, um, and just kind of process things more deeply. They really have a greater amount of empathy and compassion. And so oftentimes they don't realize that they're being drawn to help all of these other people, but they put themselves last as far as their own self-care. And because stress is having a bigger toll on them from a physical perspective, they're usually the first to burn out or break down. There's also a higher risk of anxiety, depression, and even suicide with people who have sensitivity who aren't uh, having healthy boundaries or aren't really nurturing themselves. And this can also, you can look back at early childhood experiences as well. People who are sensitive, born sensitive in a nurturing, supportive family environment, they tend to actually do better in life. Um, people who are sensitive in a stressful family environment, and it doesn't have to be abusive, it can just be tense or anxious, mm -hmm. uh, they tend to have these higher rates of, of mental illness. Yes, and I, I've read that it's estimated that up to 97% of children are raised in homes that are have some degree of stress, whether it's abuse or neglect or stress. And I recently interviewed and did a podcast episode about the ACE test and the association between childhood trauma and illness. So talk a little bit about stress sensitivity. How, how does that happen? Is it a genetic issue that people are programmed or is it a nurture type of issue that people are conditioned into that where they have an abnormal HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis response, and then that makes them highly sensitive. How does that develop? 
That's a great question. And it's both. Um, I think the research is really showing clearly that it's both nature and nurture. Um, there is definitely a genetic component with the serotonin transporter gene. So it, definitely there is something that we can see in a genetic test that some people um, actually, it's like the brain is more sensitive. And so there's um, changes in both serotonin and dopamine production um, with that heightened sensitivity from birth. Um, I, I kind of look at three things when I think about stress sensitivity. It's that genetic factor, and that would be more what I think Elaine would say is the highly sensitive person trait. That is born in. That is not a negative thing. It can be very positive if it's nurtured and supported early in life. I think that the those people may still pick up more stress than others, but it doesn't negatively impact them because they've had those secure attachments and hopefully learned positive coping skills for that heightened reaction. So most people who are very creative, most people who are uh, performers, entertainers, artists, healers, they're gonna have this sensitive trait. And if they grew up in an environment that nurtured that, um, they, they may still be impacted by stress more. They may feel, for example, global sadness at a deeper level level than others would, mm -hmm. um, but they may not get sick because of it, because they've learned that that's part of who they are, and that's actually a positive blessing that they have to be in tune with what's going on in the world. The bigger challenge is the sensitive, genetically sensitive person who grows up in a home that may even not be abusive, but it's just that I mean, I can go to my own and say I'm being teased for being too sensitive or too emotional. I would cry at every movie. I have difficulty with loud noises or bright lights. And so instead of kind of saying, well, this is part of what makes you who you are, and it's a beautiful, creative, intuitive um, trait, it was there's something wrong with you and I need to make you resilient because the world is difficult and I don't want you to be this timid flower. And so even though that's not necessarily harsh, it can really, I think for the sensitive person, kind of disconnect you and feel like you have to push that down. And anytime we're pushing stress down into our system, that's where it really impacts that HPA axis and even how the vagus nerve is regulating the parasympathetic response or reaction. So instead of just calming us down, it can go on full-blown um, disassociation. So whether it's physically fainting or emotionally disassociating from the world. Um, and you can also then see how that may lead to unhealthy coping mechanisms. So if the first thing is genetic trait, the second is early life experience, the third component is, is going to be lifestyle factors. And this is where we really have the most control is do we have healthy coping mechanisms um, or are we turning towards things like too much food, too much alcohol, um, risky behaviors and things like that to try to kind of quiet that sensitive voice in us that's been pushed down for so long. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you mentioned, so those, that third factor of really what I would consider, um, well, I guess if it goes to a certain degree, a certain amount of addiction, yes. so addictive behavior to calm that system. And I know another one of your interests is uh, stress and weight loss resistance. Yeah. And a lot of the people I work with, I work with women at midlife mostly, although all ages, uh, have weight issues. And they really fall in the category that you're describing of that HSP, highly sensitive person, caretakers who take care of other people. And a lot of 
times what they're doing is medicating with food. And so it's something that we have to address. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. So again, I think there's two things happening there. One is that if we're not taking care of ourselves in other ways, that food is very comforting and it does change the chemistry in the brain. It will literally relax us. So just like any other drugs, I think that, you know, carbohydrates and sugar in particular can really give us a high or give us some relief. Um, And part of why I'm I'm fascinated with this as well is that was my kind of drug of choice. So I struggled with my weight from a very early age and then got into really disordered eating behaviors for a long time. Um, So I understand that that can be an outlet. What amazed me is when I was actually doing my dissertation, I did my dissertation on weight management and stress management because all of the experts that I would talk to about weight management would say the number one factor is really stress management. But everything you look at for weight management tends to be exercise or diet related. So no one was really digging into then what does that mean and how important is it? And I believe just in the research that I've done that you could be actually eating the right things in the right time, but if your stress level is too high, you're totally changing the way that your digestive system is working. You're not absorbing the nutrients as effectively. So you could be eating the right food, but it's not even getting um, used by your body to repair the way that it should, that those nutrients should. So um, I think it's, it's doing two things, an elevated cortisol or even a flatlined cortisol cortisol, which is the stress hormone, is going to need to pull some of the nutrients from the food to try to regulate basic um, needs that we have and not necessarily increase the endorphins in the brain like serotonin and dopamine that we need to feel good. So we tend to just go for more and more and more that way. Um, so we, knew, we do know that chronic stress will elevate uh, appetite as well, just for part of the survival perspective. And I think what a lot of people do when they go on a diet, and I've certainly done this as well, is that they just don't eat at all. And so you really set yourself up from this like low metabolic state where your body's really conserving, 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 and you may only have one meal a day, but your brain is really trying to latch onto that and store that away um, as fat. So I've even worked, you know, unfortunately, I've worked with a lot of thin fat people because they're thin on the outside, but their body's storing fat because they're in this elevated chronic stress state that's just kind of desperately holding on to that. So I think one of the most important things we can do, and I actually wrote a book called Relax Your Fat Off for this reason, is to train our brain to believe that we have everything that we need. And so then food becomes something that we can enjoy and we can enjoy in moderation. We don't have to be so tightly controlled over it. Um, But we eat mindfully and we eat with gratitude and appreciation and we slow down Um, the Mediterranean diet, which has gotten a lot of positive um, research about it. I always tell people it's not just the food, it's how you eat. It's the pace Mm -hmm. that you take that food in and the gratitude and the social component of eating, not just, you know, pushing down feelings, which can happen so easily. Oh, I love what you said too. Did you say train our brain to believe that it has everything it needs? Yeah. I love that because in that way, you're kind of cultivating uh, mindfulness and gratitude. And I believe that that's the creative force of the, the universe. And when you feel that satisfaction, that's a satisfied state, then uh, the, it helps to balance your hormones. 
That's and right. they're, they're all intertwined. So everybody listening know that cortisol is the stress hormone and it interacts with your insulin hormone, your thyroid hormone, your sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. So when you're stressed and it affects your cortisol, it's pulling all your other hormones out of balance. And that can manifest as female uh, reproductive system problems like irregular periods, heavy periods, painful periods, skipped periods. Yeah. It can also unbalance your insulin and affect your blood sugar and it can affect your thyroid. So your body will sometimes crave certain foods, particularly salt and sugar mm -hmm. to bring it into balance. So the cravings can be partly your body's desire to come into balance, but it's kind of a misguided way of doing it as well as medicating what um, we're talking about. Yeah, and I'd like to add just one thing to that because I think before we go too far into it, it's really helpful for people to understand that not all stress is equal because a lot of times people will say, oh, stress is gonna kill me and now it's gonna make me fat and I have so much stress and it feels really hope hopeless. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to understand there's a dramatic difference between acute or short-term stress and chronic or long-term stress. And that when we wake up in the morning and we feel like we don't have enough time, money, resources, that mentality is what really hijacks us into the chronic stress state. So the little things that we do, like practicing gratitude, like journaling, like reading something inspirational, listening to music, meditation, there's all of these things we can do to build our capacity that can turn chronic stress into acute stress because now we're taking action and we're doing something about it. And that's a really dramatic shift in the brain and how we perceive the circumstances of our lives. So it's not about eliminating stress, but to really look at what is the type of stress, what is it trying to tell me that's out of balance and what one imperfect action can I take to shift that in a more positive way. And as soon as you take an action, even if it's not perfect, you take an action, you're training your brain that you do have the capacity to cope. And it's just one little step after the other. So I use that a lot about training the brain because I feel like your brain can be your friend or your frenemy. And it's just super important that you become the boss of your brain. Your brain is just constantly picking up all of these messages to make sure that you're safe. And the more you can send it from your soul, um, that I am safe, that I am grateful, that I am cared for, all of those types of things, the brain is gonna lay back a little bit and let you do what you wanna do. And so do you help people cultivate that with certain practices that you mentioned, meditation, journaling? I'd love, let's tell everybody some steps that they could take today if they're in that acute stress state and they're in that lack and limitation, not enough time, not enough money, not enough love. How can they really, what are some concrete steps that they could take to start shifting that? Sure. So I have what I call my stress mastery formula, and it's really simple. But just to pull all of this together, it has three steps. So the first one is to assess, the second is to appreciate, and the third is to adjust. And I think that all three are important and can be done very quickly. So this doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out process. If if you need it to be long and drawn out, we can do that too. Um, but the assess is really to just check in with yourself and become more aware and ask the question, um, what is this here for? I believe that all of our stress experiences are here to serve us and to make us healthier and happier. If we ask that question, 
What is this here for? What is the positive that could come out of this? What is the lesson I need to learn in this? And sometimes it's not obvious right away, but I think as soon as we get curious about it, that actually decreases the hijack from it, if that makes sense. A curious brain is open and flexible to ask a question not judging, not beating ourselves up, not feeling guilty or shameful, which just what is this here to teach me? The second part of the appreciation is genuinely to appreciate that your brain and your body are bringing this to your attention. And that may sound a little silly or unimportant, but it's so critical because as you mentioned, when we shift to gratitude, everything in our system changes and starts to get into better balance. So just being able to appreciate the experience, the moment, or even appreciate someone in our life who is helping us in that moment. Uh, I think gratitude and appreciation is like the special sauce for making the brain change. So we wanna be able to do that. And then it comes to adjust. And adjust is just one small thing that we can do differently to try to build our capacity, reduce our demand. I believe the majority of the time reducing demand is tougher. So I like to start people by building capacity. And I think most people already know what they could be doing that's realistic for them to do, that's simple. Um, and getting, I always suggest getting a partner, a buddy, or someone that you can say, I'm going to recharge myself. And I'd love for you to work with this um, kind of process with me. So I always encourage people to just create a recharge toolkit. So it's not... Um, it's not stress management, it's nothing complicated, but just like what are the things that help you to recharge that you could build into your day more regularly? And I talk about five times during the day. I think the most important is right when you wake up and right before you go to bed. And in those time frames, I like to have one simple thing that you can do. I did mention several of them, like um, listening to a guided meditation, listening to music, having a recharge playlist. So when I'm really struggling with either anxiety or depression, I have a different song I'll listen to, and I'll just listen to it three times, kind of get myself going. What song? Um, well, I have different ones, actually, depending on the time. It's funny. I... Um, I have, gosh, there's so many of them. It really depends on kind of the mood I'm in, but I'll tell you, there's a couple from a show I used to watch called Nashville that I really like. Um, and, and ultimately it's, for me, it's lyrics that are saying um, something about either not giving up or wanting to live a full life. I mean, there's so many great songs like that. I also really like India Ari. So I listen to some of her <laughs> music, which is just really kind of calming and grounding for me. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, to have something that's that quick, I think that's part of it, is when you're experiencing stress, you don't want to have a list of things that you have to do to now try to minimize stress. So if it's just right there on your playlist, um, I also do, and I always have with me, aromatherapy, yeah. which especially for sensitive people is really powerful to do some breathing exercises with aromatherapy that can actually help to, to balance um, brain function as well. And I always have my little stress monkeys with me. And if you squeeze them, his heart pops out. And oh. this is where I kind of bring this one's a little deflated, but um, this is where for me, I bring in a little bit of the, the humor component because humor actually puts the brain into a more relaxed state. It reduces cortisol, it reduces inflammation in the body. And you don't have to tell a joke. You just have to find something funny. So for me, I always have little monkeys around me that I, I play with. And then I have a humor buddy who will send me funny things. And we kind of share those back and forth. Um, going for a walk, obviously, even something like having a cup of coffee can be turned from something that you're dependent on to something that's a 
gratitude experience for you to just sit and appreciate. And I think that's what we're missing so much because we rush, we rush and we rush and we rush. And out of 20,000 people that I've surveyed, the number one stressor is feeling like you don't have enough time to get it done. And that's a perception really. Um, and something that we have to work on within our own mindset. I love those. You really pull in uh, different senses. I like that you pull in the smell. So you're kind of bypassing that cognitive brain, which is the part that gets stuck in, I don't have, I have to, and you're going with the olfactory nerve for the aromatherapy, maybe essential oils, or you could just open coffee can and smell that. That's sure. aromatherapy. Yeah. Uh, and the, the tactile nature with your little monkey and the music, you're engaging both hemispheres of the brain and you're really changing the frequency and, and the vibration of the energetic state, which will change your perception of your current circumstance and that cognitive functioning. So I yeah. love the tools that you're offering and the processes for people listening. And if you're listening, I welcome you and encourage you to write those down and to pick just a couple that you could try, be ready with them before you feel stressed, and then remember and pull it out and use it. I, I love the music one. That's, yeah. that's one of my favorites. I want to add something to that because you brought up such an important point that I usually try to make sure to bring up. Actually, two things. Um, one is that the brain is organized in a very specific hierarchy from the bottom to the top. So a lot of times we try to change our cognitive processes before we change our sensory state. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong. So the, if you can shift your state, which is one of the seven habits of stress mastery, is to shift your state, then the brain works better. And so now you can start to change your perception. But I think that that's really important. We process sensory information quicker, and it actually is required that we kind of open up that sensory part of the brain before we can get to that top part to change our mindset. And so I'm always looking for ways to incorporate that. Um, and then the other one was too about things like music, to have it ready when you need it. And I'd like to encourage everybody to think about proactively building in these habits of building capacity, because I think a lot of times we, we rely on them when we need it. So if I only use, for example, this particular, and I have a bunch, but this particular fragrance to me is very grounding. If I only use this when I need it, I'm not really solidifying the neural pathways in my brain to connect as well as I could. It doesn't mean it wouldn't work, but if I use this on a regular basis, then what happens is very quickly when I practice proactively with breathing and gratitude and the aroma, then let's say I'm about to get on stage and I'm always really nervous when I get on stage, even though I've done it for a long time, I can just take like three inhalations and it's like the whole experience comes back to me. Um, and so I always want people to understand that this is not a wait until you're stressed thing. This is a proactively building your capacity so that when stressful circumstances do come into your life, you've got more capacity to cope and they're going to be acute in that sense, helpful stress reactions, not the harmful stress reactions over time. 
Yes, and I really encourage people to start first thing when they wake up. A lot of us tend to start our day with an alarm clock and the news, which yeah. is not usually good, yeah. and, or the newspaper and our to-do list and our emails and lots of demands coming at us. And I actually switched a few years ago. I don't watch TV or news and I start my day right away with meditation and journaling and listening to uplifting audio recordings and I think it's made all the difference so I start by setting the set point that sensory set point vibration early in the morning at a higher level so I find that when those stressors come in I'm floating up here and it doesn't feel right. like a stress right. that's right <laughs> And, and I think in that sense, I mean, I say this and a lot of people think it's kind of cheesy, but I believe stressing is a blessing once you know how to use it. So now what happens with that capacity is that stress comes up and you can just meet it where it is. You know, there are things in life that are going to be stressful. And the key is that you have the capacity to cope with them and that you build a support system around you. Because that's another thing is that other people instantly give the brain a perception of greater capacity. You know, we have our limited capacity by ourselves, but when we have a network of people around us that we can reach out to and rely on, it makes a huge difference. And I would say, especially for the female brain, which is wired differently, female brain patterns work a little bit differently to really need that social connection and support, um, more so even than, than the typical male brain pattern. Doesn't mean all men and all women, but there are some clear patterns in the research that show that the female brain is wired to be in relationship. Um, and it's, it's even more effective for us when we have that great social support. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because I don't know that most women are aware that that's necessarily the case. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what the research is showing there. Sure. I'm always a little hesitant because I, I know that we don't, we don't want to put anybody in a box. And I think that certainly there was a time where women were seen as kind of the weaker, weaker sex or weaker gender. And it was funny, we were watching a movie recently and my mom turned to me and said, is that true? And it had something to do with a female brain size being smaller than a male brain size. And I said, well, if our bodies are smaller then our brains are smaller, but they actually work a lot better. So <laughs> <laughs> in my humble opinion. Um, but the, the research has actually shown that um, a lot of, I should say, a lot of the studies that have been done on stress for a very long time were done on men because men don't have the same hormonal fluctuations. They're easier to study um, because you don't have to worry about where they are in a cycle. They're pretty consistent across the board. But that left women out. And, and we certainly know certain medications work better for men versus women. And so there's a lot now that we're starting to learn about the differences in these patterns. And the patterns um, are more about um, estrogen and oxytocin levels in the brain. So they do have to do with hormones as well as structure. Um, so different periods in someone's lifespan, they may change. So if there's less estrogen, this may be less of a case. But really, we have the fight or flight 
um, the most typical stress reactions we hear of all the time are more of a male brain pattern of kind of going out and fighting somebody or running away from a, a situation. Mm -hmm. And the female brain pattern is called tend or befriend. And so because of the estrogen and oxytocin, oxytocin being a bonding chemical, when women experience stress, our first reaction is usually to take care of people or to create relationships so that we can work together to solve the problem. And the beautiful thing is that when you have men and women together working on a problem, you've got a lot of different ways to um, get a solution. So the interesting thing is if you have a man and a woman or male brain pattern and female brain pattern, they're both equally successful at solving a problem. So it's not that one is better than the other, but if you watch them in a brain scan, you'll see that they use different tactics to get there. And I actually think that that's important because if we're in relationship with each other, if we can understand how the other person might be coping with stress and not take it personally that they don't want to talk about it or that mm -hmm. they do want to talk about it, um, we, can, we can show up more effectively, I think, for our partners and our colleagues and our friends. Yes, I, I agree that understanding biology and anatomy and physiology and how males and females are different can help interpersonal relationships because we, we are wired differently. And I think that a lot of our miscommunication or difficulties in relationship often stem from that biology and physiological difference. So thank you for explaining that. And hopefully if you're listening, you'll start maybe processing how the men in your life are or maybe responding differently from you and, and not take it personally and really start to understand that they're wired differently and uh, finding ways to navigate that together. Yeah. And just one simple kind of thing to keep in mind for that is I've noticed I've just recently married. And so, you know, learning, learning all of that kind of stuff is I know that he tends to want some kind of time away if there's a problem. And I desperately want to kind of hang on because I want to talk it out. So even learning that and being able to, to give time for both, that there's time for this as long as I know we're going to come back and talk. It sounds silly, but even with men making appointments to talk about something important rather than you know, interrupting or sending these little messages that we think that they're going to pick up on. It's much better to just be more direct because their brain is much more direct. So if they know this is what we're going to talk about, and then this is going to be the resolution of that. And then I can go on to what I was doing. Whereas we can kind of go all over the place with our thoughts and we can multitask and take on a lot of things. Their brain isn't really wired to do that. Great, great advice. <laughs> make an appointment. <laughs> right, make an appointment. Set an agenda, make an appointment. So tell me, how did you come to become a certified humor professional? Well, about five years ago, I was going through one of my most difficult depressions, and I'm very open about that. I still struggle a lot with anxiety and depression, um, and for me, I know what I need to do to kind of stay on track and, and keep my brain in a good place, but I don't, just like everybody, I don't always do that. Sometimes I take on too much work or I'm traveling too much or whatever it might be, and so I was going through a really difficult time and just kind of intuitively felt like I needed to laugh. And I just hadn't laughed in a long time. And so as any good scientist would, I started doing research, like, why do I want to laugh? And why is laughing important? And so I found this group, the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. 
I was first, I was just kind of floored that there was such a thing. And then they were having a conference a block from my condo. Oh. So I submitted a proposal to speak. Um, and actually I was talking about stress management, weight management, and how laughter and humor could play a role in that. But I didn't really know a lot about it. Anyway, long story short, I went to the conference and um, it, it was it was very interesting because our group has a lot of very silly, very laugh, laughter kind of oriented. We do laughter yoga and a lot of that kind of stuff. But there's also uh, a very strong core of people who really research in the lab kind of what happens when we laugh and why and how humor is so helpful for building resilience. I just chaired our conference, in fact, earlier this year. I'm now on the board. Um, but there's a three-year certification program. And what it does is it teaches you the theory the first year, the second year is more of the application, and then you do a research project, and the third year is leadership. And how do you take this into your place of work. I would say the majority of our members are in healthcare. So we have a lot of doctors, nurses, social workers, physical therapists who use humor and laughter um, to help people heal. But we also have a very big group of us who also use it in business. So looking at um, humor and laughter and how that helps with things like sales, marketing, communications. And so uh, for me personally, I'm not a big laugher, um, but I find all sorts of things funny. And what I've learned is that just like any other mindset, if you start looking for things that you find funny, you start seeing more things that are funny. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty amazing how that can change kind of what you're paying attention to. So I did just a personal research case study on myself. Uh, I, there's one component I always look at for people when I'm doing brain assessments and it's um, negativity, positivity bias because it impacts so many things. And my negativity bias at the time going through the depression was a one, which is as bad as it gets. And by the way, 100% of people with depression have negativity bias. So instead of just looking at how do we lift the depression, one of my things that I'm working on is how do we lift the negativity bias? And I believe that the depression will resolve as a result. So for 30 days, I did a humor intervention. So I was getting humorous things and I was really paying attention to humor. And in 30 days, I went from a one to a 4.5, which is actually a healthy average score. Um, and it's the kind of thing, just like exercise though, that you have to keep up. So it wasn't like I did that and I was cured. It's a, it's a skill set. You can train your brain to appreciate what's funny in your life more. And I think the best way to do that is to have a humor buddy or join a group like AATH, where you're actively kind of engaging in the process of finding things funny. So one of my quotes is, it's not about being funny, but seeing funny. And the more you see funny, the more resilient you are in difficult situations, because your brain's just more creative and flexible and resilient. I love that. And, and I always look for things to laugh at. I love to laugh at myself and look at the irony and the humor in my life, in my behavior, in my relationships. Uh, so it's something that I innately kind of came by. And probably sometimes I worry people think that I laugh at things that aren't funny, but I find the humor in them. Um, so... Why do you think, in your personal opinion, because you're obviously an, an expert on stress, you've personally dealt with depression and anxiety, as have I, as have many millions of women. Yeah. It's so epidemic. Why do you think that anxiety and depression are at such high levels among women? 
Well, I think there's a couple of things, um, especially with women. I think because our brains are wired differently, we are kind of set up to take on more of what's going on in the world. I think that honestly, if you're not somewhat depressed with what's happening with our world, I mean, there's just a lot of hurting people in our world. And I think that women were wired more for empathy. And so I think we feel that more deeply. It's hard to, you know, unless you're living in a bubble, it's not, it's hard to not see people suffering today. So I think that, that we, we absorb some of that, whether it's conscious or not, our non-conscious cues are that life is hard and people are hurting. And so I think that's, that's a piece of it that's just helpful to be able to say, oh, okay, like that's, it's okay for me to resonate with people's sadness. Um, and that's an element that's probably contributing to how I feel. I think the other thing is that in a really positive way, women have more opportunity than ever. And I think that that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And it's also gotten a lot of us driving really hard and pushing really hard and into more of the competitive nature that's really wired more for male brain patterns than it is for female brain patterns. Our brain wants to collaborate, wants to be in relationship, wants to be, yes. you know, in trust and safety. It gives me goosebumps talking about it. Yes. And yet so many people, especially in the workplace, it's like, you know, there's only one or two seats for a woman at the big table. And so it gets to be very competitive. Sometimes women are harsh to each other because it's kind of like they have to have that competitive edge to, to work the way that men are working. I think there's a shift happening now. I do believe strongly that um, the feminine in the workplace is being more appreciated, but we have a long ways to go. And the other piece, and this is a tough one, but um, I do think that technology is hard for us because most of us are letting technology kind of run our lives. And so it's, there's just so much exposure to so many opportunities, so much information, um, so much connection in volume or in quantity, but not really the depth or quality that we need. Mm -hmm. So I think as women, we just really need to support each other to take care of ourselves and to not feel selfish doing that. So I'll, I'll throw one out there for everybody. Um, one of the times I was struggling more with the anxiety, I was having panic attacks and I decided I needed to get a massage and I decided to do it once a week. And so that was a very strong commitment to myself to think, you know, if I was an athlete, I'd be taking care of my body. So mm -hmm. I am somewhat of an athlete and trying to do what I'm doing. Why wouldn't I have that same kind of prioritizing my own self-care? And it was amazing how much, again, that's just beyond just the actual physical getting the massage, I'm teaching my brain that I will take care of you. I will take care of me. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, I'm so much more effective for everybody else. So I think if you can schedule those things, make the appointments for self-care as important as anybody else that you could be meeting with and genuinely start to train your brain and your body to believe that you've got your own back and then, you know, bring a friend with you and, and build that support. And there's such a ripple effect when we really recharge our own battery and we can help other people do that too. I agree. And I guess to just summarize everything you said about the levels of anxiety and depression, and I have felt this way, it's like we're trying to be a square peg going into a round hole. And so what I want everybody listening to, maybe if you've been suffering with some anxiety or depression, is that there's nothing wrong with you. Right. It might just be that 
you're trying to be a square peg and fit yourself into a, a round hole, which you don't fit in. And so if you change your perception about the situation and maybe change some of the actions that you're taking, you might be able to work your way out of some of that anxiety and depression. I'm not going to say it's the whole answer. Some yeah. people do need medication. So if you're on medication, don't stop <laughs> it because you heard us talking about this. That's right. Absolutely. Taking and it, it, it's just that it's all, it's all important. And I think there, and I certainly know, you know, just, just a medication is never enough, really. It's enough to help you feel like you're not walking through Quicksand is often what I've said, and I'm, I've been on many different medications. I'm on a medication that's working well for me now, but it is a fraction of my self-care routine. And I know for me, there's three things I have to do every day. I have to move. I've got to get physical exercise. Uh, I have to meditate to quiet my mind and focus on what's most important. And I have to mirth, which is another word for humor. So I move, I meditate, and I mirth. And if I do all three of those successfully, I'm the boss of my brain. My soul is recharged. And then when thoughts come up that don't feel like they fit, they're not aligned, I can thank my brain for bringing that to my attention and I can let it go. I don't get hijacked in that chronic stress state. I love that. Move, meditate, and mirth. That's right. <laughs> I'm going to take that as your, I was going to ask you, leave people with three top actions to take today to help increase their stress resilience and improve their health, regardless of the stress level that they're having. Can we make that number one? Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. So have, have your kind of go-to, I guess, take action plans. Um, I think that we really need to, to have a digital diet to get real clear on how much technology you are using, how reactive you are to it, because it will stimulate the nervous system, especially for people who are sensitive, for sure. Um, this is something I'm working on going into next year is a very clear, this is how much I can do. Um, and that's tough because it means we have to be able to say no. And maybe that's the third one is learning mm -hmm. that it's okay to say no, or even my favorite is not yet. Um, because of that feeling that there's not enough time to get it all done, we do have to get more clear about, you know, what are the big yeses that we're excited to say yes to, and what are the things that we can say not yet and not have to close the door, but maybe not try to put it all on our plate at one time. I love that. Yeah, not yet, not, not right now, but how many ways can you say no gracefully? Many, many. <laughs> and, and that means saying yes to yourself sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love it if you could share with everyone how you would define Her Brilliant Health. That's the name of the podcast, and that's what it's all about, is helping women create health that's brilliant. How would you define that? Wow. Well, with brilliant, I see light. And for me, in fact, uh, one of the India Ari songs I love is um, I Am Light. I would suggest everybody listen to it. It's beautiful. It is a meditation to me. I listen to that song as meditation. Um, so I think brilliant health is that soulful light that shines through us and that comes from alignment with what's most important to us. And I think if we're constantly running and constantly rushing, the light goes away because we're in survival mode. I think that when we're truly aligned with what feeds us and what fuels us and it shines through us, then we can have that ripple effect with other people. And I think that, you know, taking care of ourselves is a critical step 
to be able to show up with calm, confident energy, you know, around other people. And it's incredibly contagious. Stress is contagious and brilliance and light and confidence is contagious too. Oh, well, thank you so much for that. And you have brought so much light to us today. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. I want to let everyone know that Heidi has a book and video assessment on her website for you at www.heidihanna.com forward slash recharge. We'll have a link in the show notes. So if you can't write it down right now, don't worry. And uh, look for all kinds of resources on her website. She has um, the free download and she's got webinars and all kinds of assessments. So you can really look at where you are with your brain function and your stress management. And she's got tools that you can utilize and download to help you turn your stress from a harm into a help for your health. Thank you so much for the work that you do, Heidi, and for being here with us and sharing your life. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Her Brilliant Health Radio. Hopefully you're inspired to take action on some new information you received today. A step towards the bountiful, blissful, beautiful vitality that you deserve. If you have health topics and questions you'd like addressed, please message me on my Facebook page or visit KieranDunstonMD.com and let me know. I'd love to help. Remember to share this podcast on social media and send it to your friends and family who could benefit from it too. If you love the show, please go right now to iTunes, write a review, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be the first to know when future episodes are available. Thank you again for joining me. And remember, achieving optimal health isn't magic, it's science.